T-minus 10, 9. You're listening to the Launchpad Podcast with J-Man. Brought to you by Galant Media. Here's your host, Ignition J-Man. Don't worry. You'll know when we're you know when we're going. And thanks again for joining me for another Launchpad podcast. My name is J-Man. If you have not done already, head over to the launchpadpodcast.com. That's where you can catch all episodes. You can also score yourself some sweet merch. And if you have not subscribed at YouTube, please do so for clips at youtube.com slash J-Man is alive. Now, I'm incredibly happy to have this lady on the program. We're going to celebrate Black History Month and talk about a whole bunch of cool things. She's a former TED Talk presenter. She's also a commander in the Royal Canadian Navy and also voted one of Canada's top 100 most powerful females. That is quite the award. Wow. And she is also a brand new mom, Kelly Williamson, right here on the Launchpad Podcast. How you doing? Hey, Jamin. I am awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super stoked. Uh, and it's so good to see you again. I know we kind of saw each other, I guess, uh, um, last year at our uh, high school reunion. That was awesome. And we've bumped into each other a few times um, around the nation's capital, but it's uh, awesome to be here. So thank you so much. No problem. I feel like I should salute. Is that a good salute right there? Boom. That's beautiful. Love it. Really? All right. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm among a higher ranking officer right here. So this is quite the stuff. So the things that we're going to cover right here would be leadership, number one, because that is huge, and that is a big part of what you do within the forces. I also do want to talk about Black History Month, Mm -hmm. and you know we're both biracial individuals, if people haven't figured it out already, and (laughs) some of the stories that we have to share in regards to being biracial, it's really an interesting place to be racially. For sure. And then, of course, I want to be able to touch on you being a female in a male-dominated industry and some of the obstacles that maybe you had to overcome that we can kind of share as a blueprint to maybe have other women not have to go through the same things. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. Okay. So first off, what's it like being a mom? Uh, it is intense and insane, and I don't think I truly appreciated what I was in for until that little uh, package of joy arrived. Um, you know, in the weeks leading up to it, everybody said, get as much sleep as you can now. True. Great advice. Um, and the first three weeks, you know, despite sort of being in the Navy, working, um, doing crazy things, deploying halfway around the world and living in super austere conditions, nothing quite prepares you <laughs> really? for being a mom. Yeah, no, for sure. The first month was overwhelming. Um, but you know, I've got a great spouse and partner, my husband, John, he's fabulous. And we've kind of figured it out. I think also having a baby in a pandemic where your families are separated, mm. um, added a bit of layer of intensity and complexity to uh, trying to figure out being a new parent. Um, but you know what, as the months and weeks sort of rolled on, uh, she's lovely. She has turned into a smiley little bundle of joy. Um, I had her in her jumper this morning, trying to play some soca music. <laughs> just to see if it would get her a little more into it. Uh, So it's fun. Right. And and her name? Oh, her name is Charlotte Tessa Abigail Williamson. Wow. There we go. (laughs) You squeezed it all in there. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) Now I want to talk about your deployments. Yeah. So you were part of a disaster assistance response team and 
you've been all over the world and some pretty destitute places as well. Now, when you were in Haiti, was that during the earthquake? It was. It was right after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. Um, and it was like probably the most life-changing um, experience in my life up until that point. Um, it was phenomenal. Um, I was a brand new public affairs officer. I had finished my training, I want to say, in June of 2009. Uh, flash or fast forward to June 2010, or sorry, January 2010. I come home from work, uh, go to sleep, like fall asleep, like everybody else on the couch. Wake up, hear about, like see the news flash, like earthquake in Haiti. Um, now I was assigned to the disaster assistance response team as a secondary duty, um, and a colleague called me and said, "Hey." Um, make sure your bags are packed. Uh, there really looks like the government's talking about sending some assistance down there. Um, spoke to my boss about two hours later, 8 p.m. He said, you know, go get your essentials, go get what you need. I'm going to kick you out the door um, if this goes live. So 10 p.m. I'm shopping at Walmart, getting baby wipes, all of the sort of last minute things I might need. Uh, and then by midnight, I was driving myself down to Trenton, um, uh, and yeah, waited there for a couple of days, but eventually fairly rapidly got kicked out the door with the entire, well, the first wave of the disaster assistance response team um, wow. to Haiti. Yeah. So let me just fast forward to present moment, and I'm not going to keep on going back here. Yeah. But I'm very curious, having an experience like that, which we'll elaborate on, how much did that shape you in regards to the mother you are today? Ooh, uh... A ton. I want to say um, Haiti just really teaches you to, or Haiti taught me to be a creative problem solver um, because really dropped in the middle of nowhere, not a ton of resources initially. And you had to get creative um, to get your, to get the job done. Uh, taught me to, about the importance about building relationships. And, you know, with a little kiddo, um, it's all about taking things in stride. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, again, kids sort of like add this new, you, you don't really know how much they're going to change <laughs> your life until they're here. And that's the same thing. And if I can give advice to any sort of new or expectant parents, you know, go with the flow. And, uh, and I would also say, don't be afraid to ask for help if you have people around you who, who can support you. Um, but yeah, flexibility and learning to just roll with things were huge mm -hmm. lessons. Yeah. Right. And being able to adjust, <laughs> right. And persevere. There's also some leadership to that. It means okay to ask for help. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever, yeah. but also being able to take a situation, adjust properly, react, and then accomplish a goal. Yeah. And that is obviously something that you had to be really good at when you were overseas, Haiti, for instance, in this particular case. Yeah, in that particular case, um, so I had a great boss um, who was a mentor at that time. And I remember he, you know, he said, he said, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And that sort of really kind of helped shape my approach um, to both my jobs as a public affairs officer. Um, because, yeah, we'd be presented with problems, and I'd sort of come up with a few, diff 
few different options. So, you know, he challenged me to be a critical thinker. Okay, what's what's the best way to achieve the objective? Um, and so that's something we can do in daily lives. And it's something I ask the, my team that I work with to do um, when they're confronted with problems that they need to overcome. Okay, we'll think it through. How, how can we do this? And if we don't have the resources we need, what do we need? And let's figure, let's, let's get there. Let's just get the job done. Right. And what would you say would be the number one mistake people make in a leadership role? Oh, ooh, dude. Um, you know what? Just being afraid or being afraid to fail. You know what? Right. Uh, I, I just own the problem, own the situation and go for it. Um, and, and yeah, you know, and unfortunately, sometimes we will fail, but we you learn so much more from failure sometimes than you do from succeeding. The key is to just not make the same mistake over and over and over again. Right. I often talk about failing forward. Yes. Right? Yes. Make a mistake, learn. Try to make that mistake as little as possible, but always learn. And I even love if it. you're falling on your face, you're still moving in the right direction. Just don't fall that way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, that's fantastic. And I think, you know, I worked at Canadian Special Operations Command, uh, and that's one of the things there. The guys trained to fail. Like, what's the flaw in our plan? Let's find it so we can address it and we can adapt, uh, improvise, and, and move on. And mm -hmm. achieve the objective. Yeah. Now, doing what you're doing today, you're having to appeal to a lot of different demographics. Mm -hmm. And we went to a high school, Canterbury oh. High School. What, what? <laughs> <laughs> Very similar in regards to how broad the demographics were. You know, not only in just age of children from, you know, 14 to 19, but there were dance programs, yep. there were visual programs, there were the literary programs. And then we also had some kids that were openly gay back in like, what year is this? I know. When that wasn't the thing and different races and the jocks. And yet everybody seemed to get along. Yeah. How much do you find that high school influence prepped you for the role that you're in today? You know what? Probably quite a lot. And I think, so first of all, like, I think no discussion about Canterbury is complete without sending a huge shout out to Ross the Boss and his amazing <laughs> yeah. team of, like, guidance counselors and teachers right. um, because they set great examples for us. Um, oh. They taught us to embrace our individuality and what we brought to the table. Um, and I think you know, with the healthy dose of discipline, right? So not like, not unlike the military, but we all got along um, and we all could appreciate each other, appreciate what you, what each other brought to the table um, in that community. And so I think it's super important and it's something we see the military trying to do more and more. Um, since our operations in Afghanistan in 2011, I think the Canadian Armed Forces has seen the importance of bringing diverse views and opinions and people from underrepresented communities to the table when we do when we do planning and and when we deploy overseas it's something I saw in Haiti and again in Nepal we brought reservists from the Canadian Armed Forces from Haitian and Nepalese backgrounds on those two deployments with us um, and they helped us 
forge stronger and closer ties with the communities we were helped to send. Therefore, we could tailor um, the aid Canada was giving to the specific needs a little bit better than if we had sort of just gone there with our Canadian opinion of what was needed without really engaging with uh, stakeholders and community leaders. And I think on another side, rather than just talking to those people in formal positions of power, um, it taught us to actually go spe speak to underrepresented voices in those communities as well. So we got a a more nuanced appreciation of what the needs are and what you know the geopolitical context was um, in the various regions where we were sent to help. So again, not unlike Canterbury, having an appreciation for everything the jocks, the artists, the dancers, um, the writers did just made the team that much stronger and the community that much more vibrant. And that's what we're sort of heading towards in the Canadian Forces. Oh, that's fantastic. So. I guess, in essence, what you were also trying to do was build leaders mm -hmm. when you're yeah. there as well. So building leaders to lead, and then you can remove yourself from that process. Yeah, and I think one of the, I, I, one of the, I guess, most important lessons I've learned is the um, the success, the, the successfulness of a team, um, like remove the leader and see how the, how, see how the team gets along. And a truly successful team is a team that can, can lead itself or, or can carry on with the mission when, um, any one person is sort of removed. Oh, that's a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good insight. Uh, leadership is key, uh, for sure. Now being a female, in a leadership position. Yeah. In a male yeah. dominated occupation, the military. Yeah. yeah. What's that like? Did you ever find at any point in time that maybe you weren't given the same amount of respect? Now, I know this is something you're still doing now. You're not a retired military personnel. Right. I'm not looking to throw anyone under the bus. <laughs> but I mean, there had to be somewhere along the way where you thought that maybe you had to fight, scrape, and crawl a little bit harder than the next person to achieve your ultimate goal. Yeah, I think so. So look, the first half of my career, I was a Naval Warfare Officer um, on board uh, Her Majesty's Canadian ship uh, Algonquin and then Vancouver. Um, and, and that is a very... Uh, it's a very demanding job. So those are the primary leaders on board Canada's warships. Um, they lead the watch on deck. They're responsible for the safety and security of 200 of their shipmates. Um, and they have to become proficient in several warfare areas so that um, if they ever are in a conflict, um, they can defend and fight the ship appropriately. And along with that came at the time, I think, a very prescriptive idea of what a good leader was. And a good leader wasn't necessarily um, a bubbly uh, feminine energy. Uh, it was a hard charging, um, ball breaking, get her done um, type of role. Uh, and I, I wanna say like back, at, back in the day, uh, some of the things I brought to the table weren't necessarily embraced as uh, uh, typical leadership. Um, and I remember back in the day, so I tried to adapt um, to what was perceived as um, that that ideal um, leadership standard. And I really didn't like the person I was becoming um, because I found like I was becoming sarcastic and sharp and hard edged. Um, and while 
I think we should always adapt our personality and adapt our leadership style. I didn't sort of like the general feel that I was left with. Uh, and at the end of the day, I kind of had a reckoning with myself and I, uh, and, you know, I am, um, I am a girly girl. I am bubbly. Um, I care for my people uh, and I can still do this job. Um, so I sort of tried to let my my true self shine through a little bit more rather than sort of defaulting to what um, was the ideal. And at the end of the day, I think I think I was fairly successful. Um, um, I loved, you know, I loved leading sailors on board the ship. I loved working with our engineers uh, in the engine room. And I think I in, was able to inject the appropriate level of fun to keep the team motivated um, without, you know, once I sort of realized, hey, it's okay if I don't conform. Um, and I, I don't really think it had a negative impact. I think we sometimes, as leaders, when we're in difficult situations, we care too much about what other people think or we try to adapt to what we think other people want to think or what we think other people will want us to be but you know what know who you are and know your strengths and then lean on those strengths um and i i think you can achieve uh what you set out to be in a fairly successful manner did i have to you know i think there was a time when i thought i had to work 110 percent um you know just a little bit harder to get the same recognition a male colleague would have got um but again um this is sort of a philosophical debate is that my perception or is that how things really were i'm not mm -hmm. sure mm -hmm. yeah right thoughts they're just things exactly <laughs> are they real we don't know uh, <laughs> but it's funny you see this in movies all the time yeah. where now obviously you know, there's bullets whizzing all over the place and there's someone that's supposed to be a leader because the captain got killed or whatever the rank might be. And they're yeah. like, Dave, we got to do something. And, you know, he's just afraid of making the wrong decision. Exactly. Right? Or, or he's caught by fear. Leaders just sometimes, it, it, you just got to lead. You make the call and sometimes you're going to be wrong yep. and realizing that, that that's okay. But at the same time, you have to be in an environment to where it's okay to fail. Yes. Sounds like you were very fortunate that you had a mentor that allowed you that room to fail. I did, and you know what? Um, both of the ship's companies that I that I worked with um, were phenomenal. Um, you know, we had our problems. Yes, were there issue? You know, were there more serious problems? Perhaps, uh, but you know what? We were in a, a permissive environment where the commanding officers and the leadership command team and, and the other officers and non-commissioned officers, everybody sort of like realized we were a team and we needed to get it done. We needed to get our jobs done uh, mm -hmm. together. Yeah. And what's a pitfall that maybe a woman could easily slip into? Yeah. So you could offer some advice I, I, as to not. I think there might be a couple. One is thinking you have to conform to some sort of ideal. Um, again, you know, recognize what you bring to the table and embrace it. And I think people will appreciate that authenticity rather than you feeling obligated. Um, that being said, you know what? Dedicate yourself to continuous professional development. Learn your learn your profession or learn your trade, um, and, and continue to learn just so you can keep excelling and and pushing the boundaries on what your core knowledge and competencies are. Um, and then I would also say, you know what, avoid, you know, don't also, don't allow yourself to be stereotyped. Mm. 
and what stereotype would that be? The the male stereotype of what a woman is, like she's weak, she's not strong. Yeah, it, it could be it could be both. It could be, you know, the, there are a couple stereotypes you could probably fall in. One would be that one and then in which case just go out there and show them what you got and show them what you can do. Um that was one of the fun, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword, but it was one of the fun things I know when I was the above water warfare director on Vancouver. Um and we were doing our warfare training. Um it's it was actually pretty fun. And so everybody thought I would come in as this really timid sort of person, but you know, so this is where, Hey, I, I you know, I can be really like hard nosed when I need to be. And so it was fun. And so we would go through our battle cries and our warfare procedures and that like, I'd give it like 110%. And like, I think if you're motivated and engaged and enthusiastic about what you're doing, everybody around you will, 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 will feed off of that energy. Right, and likely want to follow as well. Yeah, exactly. Okay, now you're also biracial. Yes. And we I had am. a conversation about this <laughs> before <laughs> we went live. It's, it's an interesting place to be. It is. It really is. And so how has that played into your role today? Now, obviously, you've played an international role. I'd have to think that being biracial would be a benefit, but... Has there ever been a time as well, and you can touch on both, where yeah. it's been a detriment to where it did not serve you? So uh, I don't think it's ever been a detriment because for me it is, it, it's who I am. Um, I think, you know, so my dad's from Trinidad and Tobago. He immigrated first to the UK uh, and then he came to Canada in the late 60s. Um, and so what dad and like his sort of cohort of uh of friends colleagues you know fellow people from his diaspora or the caribbean experienced is completely different from mine but being sort of like biracial or a multi-ethnic um is interesting because when you're growing up you don't really necessarily feel welcomed or embraced by any one sort of group um but you know what i the last five to ten years i've actually loved it a lot because now this is an experiment so one of my favorite tv programs is parks and recreation um and rashida jones is one of the actresses she, she plays a nurse called Anne, and she's biracial as well um and it's really funny so leslie nope is her best friend and she calls her her racially ambiguous best friend mm -hmm. um and that's i think sort of like been my experience um when i've gone on these international deployments because i don't look like um you know what i think those countries perceive a north american looks like um they're very open and welcoming to me um and they 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 want to chat with me um when i went to nepal for example um i i know i have a bit of a south asian look and so the nepalese people were they they'd love you know they sort of come chat with me and I could be that link sometimes between um, our forces and the local community. Um, same thing, I had the, the privilege of going to Sierra Leone um, in West Africa in 2017. Um, what an experience that was, like just interacting with the people there and, uh, and getting to the, know them was fantastic, all because of coming from the background I, that you and I both come from. Right. Now, I have not extensively traveled like you, and I'm half St. Lucian, uh, half <laughs> I mean, Canadian. But yeah. I know, like, when I go to Cuba, Dominican, Mexico, like, the ladies are always very nice to me there. I don't do as well <laughs> here in North America, but I do really well 
over there. They're always flirting with me. But of course, oh, I fantastic. mean, I got to go back to Canada, though. It's over. So <laughs> <laughs> now there's some interesting dynamics for me. And maybe um, you you've had similar instances. I remember at Canterbury once I'm standing around the box at the free throw line like when mm-hmm. someone's taking their shots if you don't understand basketball just follow along <laughs> and I remember there was this Somalian kid and he said something to me and I'll never forget it he goes you're not black yo oh man right yeah. and That was really the first time that I was confronted by someone black telling me that I wasn't enough, right? Like I didn't live up to that level. And I've also spent a large part of my life since then into my adulthood where it hasn't been so much that I'm not black or I'm not biracial. I'm accepted into that community. It's more white people wanting to pull me into theirs Mm -hmm. and not acknowledging the fact that I'm a biracial individual. Yeah. And so I think I can relate to both of those experiences. So one as a young girl, so I want to say probably like grade three or grade four, I remember having a bit of the same sort of experience um, with a girl in my neighborhood um, who didn't think I was black enough or who, who wanted who you know, so I got the names like zebra and Oreo. Mm. Um, and, and so as a, as a little person, uh, that kind of that's that stays with you. Um, but then as an adult, um, I have had sort of the opposite as well, where, oh, I'm not necessarily um, black or brown enough um, for people from a dominantly Caucasian population. So it's an uncomfortable and interesting place to be in. But I think it also makes you appreciate what people from you know, black, indigenous, um, and other underrepresented communities go through. Um, and it, and it sort of helps, um, uh, a, I think it makes you more compassionate for what other people might experience in their lives. Um, and, and B, I think it can make you help you be a voice for helping highlight some of their stories or their issues. Mm-hmm. I used to draw myself as a child <laughs> with a brown marker or a brown crayon like dark yeah I identified very much with being a person of color mm-hmm. and maybe it's because my my mother was but you're saying yeah. your father was black correct that's right yeah and do you identify more with your mother or your father and were you the same did you draw yourself some I, I know some biracial children that use like a pink They've, they've drawn themselves pink. They don't acknowledge their, their blackness as much. Yeah. So you know what? Like, it's really interesting. I have sort of two memories. I think, so I was, my parents got divorced when I was um, pretty young. So, and I was raised by my mom. So I, I tend to think of myself as, um, uh, or like her family's um, Germanic sort of Dutch um 
heritage and culture is what I was raised with. But I also have like profound memories um, working with my dad, doing projects on Trinidad and Tobago and being super proud, um, you know, that the steel pan was <laughs> was was invented there. And I, we used to have this bag from from Trinidad that my parent, my mom always carried, you know, it listed all the amazing things um, that came from Trinidad uh, in the 60s and 70s. And and yeah, I, I used to be obsessed about like going to Trinidad. So it was like an amazing experience when I got to go there and meet my family um, when I was 12 years old. And so, you know what, I, so I don't recall ever what I sort of colored myself with. I do though remember, you know, there were no dolls that looked like me and it's a, mm. it's a small thing. And I think we've, we've corrected that. Um, but all my so I had Barbies and they were all sort of blonde and 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 I was so excited when they came out with the the black Barbie like Barbie's friend and she had curly hair um and it sounds like something really trivial trivial but you know it 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 comes down to that issue of representation and so little girls need to know <clears throat> that they're okay um and, and yeah, you don't need to, this sort of goes back to, you don't need to conform to this style of leadership. Well, this is not necessarily a style of beauty you need to conform to. Like mm -hmm. we need to show representation. Um, so little girls and little boys um, from those, you know, BIPOC communities know they're okay and know they're going to be accepted. Right. I have some friends that are in biracial relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, you are as well. Yeah. And one of my friends, his son calls himself golden. He says, <laughs> I'm golden. And I, I think that's great. Um, and his wife, even though she's quite dark, she considers herself to be brown. Mm -hmm. Right now, some people will look at that as just being like, that's fine. She can be whatever she wants to be. Other people would look at that as potentially not being proud of one's blackness. Mm -hmm. And now you're obviously going to have a, well, you do have <laughs> a biracial child. Yep. So how do you plan on parenting moving forward based on that? Is that going to play a large role? Is it going to play a medium role? And the things that you just spoke of in regards to having dolls that looked like you. Is that now something that is important for you as a parent? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, uh, the way, I think it's going to, I'm not going to be preoccupied by it, um, but it's really important to me that Charlotte spends time with my dad and gets to know um, that part of her ancestry. Um, in addition to her Canadian and Dutch and Germanic and, and British uh, side. And you know what, she's got crazy curly hair. Um, and I think, she, you know, we're going to embrace it. Uh, and uh, just, I'll talk about Kamala Harris uh, and how amazing it was that this woman is now vice president of the United States. And I think that's hugely important um, and to bring it back to my career in 2016, like I kind of, you know, I was doing well in the military. Uh, I didn't really have a ton of female leaders or, or, or close mentors. Sorry, there are a lot of female leaders, but I didn't have any close female mentors until 2016 when I worked for Vice Admiral Nora Tyson, who um, is now retired, but she was the commander of U.S. Third Fleet. It was the first time I'd worked directly for a female flag officer. And 
working for her was the first time I had an aha moment, like, oh my gosh, like I could be an executive leader in my military if I worked really hard. Uh, and so I think, you know, people seeing and being exposed to leaders that look like them or from their communities is hugely important. Uh, and so, um, you know, just bringing it all back, uh, representation um, is what I'm going to sort of teach her. Um, I'm also going to teach her, you know, to appreciate sort of like everything. And if we want to take it back to Canterbury, everybody brings something into like entertaining and important um, and valuable ideas and diversity of ideas is what's important. So that's the mm -hmm. most important lesson I think I'm going to teach her. Right. And refresh me. We talked about this not that long ago and my brain is just poop. But in regards to Black History Month, that was something that Canterbury didn't have when I first got there. And yeah. by the time I left, it did. Now, I remember you being tied into that to some degree. Do you remember the role that you played in bringing Black History Month? I believe it was an assembly uh, that we had. Yeah, so I think it was the first assembly, and we had two co-presidents. Yovanka McBean was one of them. I think Meredith uh, Meredith Sharp was probably the other. And that year on student council, I think I was a year or two behind them. They brought me on student council, and I um, in a role as like a multicultural representative. And uh, yeah, the school planned Black History Month, and we I remember like. I remember, I think I read a poem like by Maya Angelou, like I Too Sing America, which oh, like just completely resonated. Like I Too Sing America, I'm the darker brother. Um, it's just awesome. But I think it's important to sort of, uh, you know, understand history, appreciate it um, and share it. And I think that was the goal of that assembly was to just share the culture um, with, a, with a broader audience than, than we had ever done at that school in the past. And I think if as a society, we can remember to create space for, for voices, even if they're dissenting voices, it's, it's important um, so that we all are able to contribute to society. Yeah. There's one thing that people say to me, that drives me nuts. I don't know why, and maybe you have one of these too. Let's have a biracial chat right here. You and me, <laughs> let's just forget everybody else. We're just gonna have a chat here, you and me. <laughs> when people say nice tan, like they, I, I'm outside a lot and I do, I do tan. Like I am much darker during the summer months. Yeah. And I know there's nothing insulting about it coming from them. They just, think I'm a white guy obviously or maybe they don't maybe I'm thinking that mm -hmm. right but it seems with their inflection and their tone like one dude says to me oh you work construction and no slam to construction guys but again like just these labels that that get put on me I've learned to let it not bother me as much but it is something that does agitate me the fact that someone will just discount the fact that I am potentially a, a biracial individual. And there's two sides to that. I think it's great that someone isn't necessarily looking at color, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then on the flip side, I guess there's the tiny bit of ignorance that just maybe ask me a little bit of a different question, like what's your background? Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I think I've been in those situations too. And I, I get a little bit uncomfortable and I'm like, but, and I always say, Oh, thanks very much. Uh, but right. a part of me wants to say, but the, the tan's natural. Right. Um, um, I, I don't let it bother me though. I think like, you know what? 99.9% .9 of human beings are awesome and they're just trying to be nice. Uh, but, but it, it is true. Um, why do we have to sort of go that route when it, it can be a much broader conversation? Yeah, you're right. They're just trying to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very diplomatic answer. That's good. That's safe. That's safe. And I appreciate it. Now, as you had mentioned previously, you being biracial most definitely has had its advantages yeah. when you're overseas. Yeah. And you have a TED Talk underneath your belt. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming there's a tie in there somewhere in regards to your your efforts and i mean obviously that playing a positive role in those efforts right, right. um so uh so look the ted talk came about um through the canada's top 100 um and the the organizers of the ted talk um th that i gave they wanted, they were showcasing like female leaders who show up um, and what I wanted, and they asked me to talk about my experience in the military because a lot of people don't know about uh, the military. Um, and so my goal was to, yes, talk about things, but I didn't want to talk about things people thought they knew about the military. I wanted to challenge people's perceptions on what, what the military is, who's in the military, um, and to just show that um, the military is striving to be a reflection of Canadian society. Um, it's striving to attract um, uh, soldiers, sailors, and aviators from underrepresented groups and, you know, mainstream uh, groups as well. And um, if we're able to successfully do that, um, we're better able to serve Canada. We're better able to represent um, the values of Canada, both at home and abroad. And I think, again, as a theme that's been running through our chat, um, it makes us better, stronger, more creative, and more agile thinkers. Mm -hmm. And I also want to talk about something you just referenced on. You went over it quickly. Oh, yeah, the top 100. Because, <laughs> you know, maybe people are tuning in late because I do broadcast this on a, a watch party. It's not just going to be someone watching from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully they go back and check it out at the launchpadpodcast.com. Uh, but Kelly was voted one of Canada's top 100 most powerful females. And... I can't even imagine me being top 100 for anything, <laughs> like nothing. I don't even, like, I can't even fathom what that would be. What a high honor to yeah. receive. How did that come about? Yeah, so look, um, 2017, um, I was doing a lot of work um, at the strategic level, um, helping um, strate helping strategic leaders communicate uh, on what the Canadian Forces was doing overseas. Um, and one of my superiors nominated me in uh, an assistant deputy minister. Uh, he seconded the nomination uh, and I was sort of aware of it, but then wanted to forget about it because like didn't think there was any chance that uh, um, 
that anything would come of it. Uh, and then my mind was blown um, when when I actually made the list. Um, and it is is the Women's Executive Network, uh, and, and their goal is to just shine a light on uh, women across Canada. Every year, there's a new top 100 list that comes out, and these are women who are making you know significant contributions uh, in their field. So the trades, um, chief executive officers, corporate leaders, government leaders, um, young leaders, um, and it's just such an honor. But to be you know to be quite honest, there's so many outstanding. Um, um, leaders, men and women in the Canadian Armed Forces, um, that I would say that the the honor is something I'd love to sh I share with all of them um, because there are so many people doing so many amazing things each and every day. Mm -hmm. And who would be the number one female mentor for you or a number one female that you look up to oh. or that you looked up to like growing up? Yeah. Um, okay, so no conversation about female mentors. So I was, so my mom, um, who is amazing. Um, and just like, you know, I, I played volleyball, um, early in my career, uh, in the military. And, um, there is a team of about 10 women, um, from, uh, Francis Allen, um, uh, Heidi Twelman, Monique Falker, Karen Leviolet. Um, there, were just so many women who very early in my career were such great friends and excellent role models. Um, and then, of course, Vice Admiral Tyson, she might not know it, but just having that opportunity to see a woman um, lead a multinational task force. Um, I briefed her every day, so I was in a lot of meetings with her, um, just really showed me um, you know, what it takes and the confidence and she led with humor and class and she just set, set a great example. And that's something I'll carry with through with me. And it's something, um, it's something I try to do every day. But beyond that, you know, I, I've had a ton of amazing male mentors as well and just really, you know, thank them for being champions and advocates um, and, and uh, you know, helping sort of create the space where I could do my thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay. And maybe dispel mm -hmm. a misconception that somebody might have in regards to being in the armed forces. Um, that we're all sort of like square, um, robots. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Like you see people in uniform and you, you don't think they're necessarily like creative people, but they're amazing musicians. They're talented artists. Um, they're writers. Um, they're people who, they're people who care deeply and passionately about their communities and about the country. And they're not, you know, blank wheels in a cog that don't think critically. Um, that don't care about their community. Um, these are people who care about people around them. Mm -hmm. And the number one reason why somebody should enlist if they're maybe even dancing with the idea. Oh my goodness. For me, it would, uh, the, I would say it's the opportunity um, to travel around the world and to make a difference. Um, and just, you know, whether you're deployed on an operation in Central Europe, whether you're lucky enough to, you know, jump on a Navy warship and do a, an operational deployment uh, to Asia Pacific, 
whether you're on the disaster assistance response team and provide humanitarian aid in a country overseas, there are so many incredible personal and professional lessons that will come from that, um, that, you know, I think it will only it will only build your character and you can do it for a little time or you can do it for a long time. Um, but uh, just those experiences alone. Um, and then, like I said, they're the people. If you are lucky enough to get into a tight knit crew, some of my closest friends are my military friends and they're more like family um, than colleagues. And so, you know, just that chance to be surrounded by um such a tight-knit group and to go overseas and do great things um that is i think the opportunity available should people wish to take it mm -hmm. and i spent four years in petawawa i was doing radio in pembroke for those four years and i lived within a 30 second walk of the pmqs yeah. And I got to play softball with military personnel. Awesome. They became my friends. And when there's a fallen soldier, I never felt that here in Ottawa. It wasn't so much a thing. It gets lost in the headlines, opposed to when something like that happens in a military community. Mm -hmm. um, it's big. Yeah. And I'm really fortunate that I had the opportunity to live there and live that life. I was really flattered when I was asked to, and I'm not sure if you remember this, there was a Red Friday movement and it started in Pembroke, Petawawa. And I got to MC that festival there that they awesome. had to kind of like launch the whole thing. And it's by far what, of, what I consider to be my, my greatest accomplishments. And I, I say all this not to impress anybody, but to impress upon the importance and the appreciation that I have for, for the military, for all different veins and branches, and to tell you deeply from the bottom of my heart that I appreciate your service and everything that you servicemen and service women do for our country. Yeah, that's awesome. And let's not forget about families too, because, you know, the families um, give so much as well. Um, when soldiers, sailors, aviators deploy overseas, families are at home trying, you know, you know, keeping it all together, continuing to engage in the community and they, their strength, uh, their love and support really enable um, our CF members to, to get out there and to do some pretty incredible stuff. And they're part of the team. And so um, those families just are incredible as well. And the sacrifices they're often called on to make um, above and beyond. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Well, I know that there's no more valuable time than the time with your child that you've taken away <laughs> uh, to share with me. So thank you very much for being on the Launchpad podcast, Kelly. You are absolutely fantastic. It's, everything that I expected it would be. And there's absolutely no mistaking that you are most definitely one of Canada's top 100 most powerful females. Give me a flex. All right. There we go. Ah, <laughs> we look at those types. All right. So again, if you like the content, you appreciate it, uh, head over to youtube.com slash jmanislive and subscribe and catch all episodes at the launchpadpodcast.com. You take care, be well, and love simply because you can. <laughs>